This morning, I want to continue to speak about godly grieving from the book of Lamentations. I want you to think of grieving over how the grace of God in Christ is often despised and squandered, even by you, and therefore its impact on you and through you become gravely diminished and even ineffective in advancing God's kingdom in this world. Imagine entering a completely dark place where a crowd of people are living in darkness, wandering and stumbling along. While you possess a powerful LED flashlight, but you just choose not to turn it on. But rather, you choose to live in the dark. And after a time, you stumble. You drop the light and cannot see where it has fallen. And now you sadly realize the gift you had and the impact you could have had. But you have become just like the people in the room, only worse. You chose not to rejoice in the light, nor to share it with those in darkness. And now that darkness has overwhelmed you. Look at Lamentations chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke, by his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. He has rejected all my mighty men, the Lord in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed." Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The book of Lamentations grieves the destruction and desolation of Jerusalem, the holy city the city of the great king. 
Chapter 1 pictures this city as an abused widow, stripped naked and exiled into slavery. The city is burned, battered, and barren. Its mission to be a blessing now broken. This city, this widow, had cried out to her Lord in verse 9. She says, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. In verse 11 she says, Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. The widow cries, but there is no answer. There is no comfort, because the widow has, who was married has rejected and despised her husband and sought out other lovers. In verse 12, the city turns to every passerby. It had cried to the Lord, but the Lord had not heard, had not answered, had not comforted. And now the city looks out into the world and cries out to every passerby and urges them to learn from the sins that she has committed. Jerusalem's destruction was not for nothing to others, but it was a true monumental and immeasurable loss. Those who passed by Jerusalem were supposed to see a light shining in the darkness, showing the way. Passerbys were supposed to see lives lived under the king, a vision of holy living worthy of imitation. They were supposed to see a way to be reconciled to God and to each other. They were to see the shadow of Jesus, the greatest coming attraction of all. But the one and only place on earth God chose to dwell was now abandoned by him, desecrated by Babylon, and left barren, lifeless, and desolate. She was to be the most beautiful mountain, as the psalmist said, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. Glorious things were spoken of her. Just one day in her courts was better than a thousand elsewhere. How lovely was the Lord's dwelling place. God's people longed, even fainted for the Lord's courts, because at those courts they were declared right with God through faith in the coming Christ and his sacrifice. The one thing David desired and sought above all other things was to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. But now this place has been broken. This widow, Jerusalem, says to look carefully and see that because of all of these privileges she had, now despised and squandered. There was no pain and no sorrow like hers. Her pain was great because her privileges were great. Now what she could have been had been forfeited. This sorrow 
this affliction, moreover, was from the Lord's hand. It was his fierce anger. It wasn't just Babylon. It was the Lord himself, and his fierce anger was being unleashed on this fallen people because of their sin, their adultery, their idolatry. To those to whom much is given, much more will be required. Israel had been given much and were called to be holy to the Lord and joyfully living under his reign and being a blessing to others. In the great passage in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where where God calls Abraham away from his father's house and from his kindred and from his land to go to a land where he would show him and that God promised to make him a great nation and and to bless him. And at the end of verse 2, it doesn't come out in the English, but in the Hebrew it actually says that Abraham is to be a blessing. He's commanded to be a blessing. that to those to whom much is given, much more will be required. The blessed life that Israel had was supposed to issue out in being a blessing among the nations. But they lost it all through their idolatry. The destruction and the desolation of God's dwelling place pictured here actually points to the crucifixion of Christ in its ultimate sense. God's true tabernacle is Jesus. His true temple was Jesus, and he alone was made to know the power of God's anger when he endured the fierce unleashing of God's anger upon his person as he hung on the cross. Contrasted with Israel or Judah in this passage in Lamentations, Jesus, however, his prayers, unlike hers, they were heard. All that Jesus prayed to his Father was, was heard by his Father. Jesus did not look for pity or for help from humans, but he entrusted himself fully to his Father in heaven whose judgment was always just. Why the pain of Calvary? Why the sorrow of Calvary? Jesus was bearing your griefs. He was carrying your sorrows. He was pierced through for your transgressions. He was crushed and shattered for your iniquities. He was chastised for your peace. He was wounded for you to be healed. All we, like sheep, had gone astray. We have all turned aside, everyone to our own way, and the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Sin has consequences, even for believers. And when we sin, like Judah had done, It has consequences, negative consequences in our life and in the life of others. 
And when we recognize our sin, it must lead us to the cross. It must lead us to repent. And it must lead us to rejoice in what Christ has done in his sacrifice for our sins. In addition, it must lead us to urge others who see and experience the results of our rebellion not to repeat our evils, but turn to Christ and be renewed. How many parents foolishly pretend before their children to be perfect instead of allowing their own failures to be a testimony to their children so that the next generation doesn't repeat the same foolishness. Don't let a poor testimony be wasted. Don't let a poor testimony keep you from testifying of the goodness of your Heavenly Father's discipline and His desire to grow you up and mature you. Verse 14 speaks to this end. It is the Lord in this passage who takes Judah's rebellion and binds it up as a yoke on her shoulders. The Lord uses Judah's sins against her to teach her a lesson. She experiences the fruit of her evil actions. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, If you sow a thought, you reap an action. If you sow an action, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a character. If you sow a character, you reap a destiny. Your sin has a great impact on you and a great influence on others. It robs you and it robs others of the blessing that could be experienced and enjoyed. Often churches close and their impact is removed because of private, unrepentant idolatries. Remember what Christ said to Ephesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. He said, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. We often don't like to think about Jesus as someone who comes after us and warns us and threatens bad to come. But that is the Christ of the Bible that if we do not repent of sin, there are consequences that we must deal with. Our only hope, our only motivation is that our rebellion, our sins were bound up as a yoke on the neck of Jesus as he hung on the cross. God gave his son over to death to have dominion over him for a time. Jesus exposed himself to death's blow, so the punishment that was rightfully ours was taken by him. 
When you think about this reality, we cannot turn again to sin. We must constantly turn to Him and repent of sin. We must do this daily and not allow sin to go unchecked in our lives. We all know the horror stories, the tragic testimonies of God's grace being abused in the body of Christ. God's grace being used to make excuses for sin. How about you? Do you believe a one-sided gospel? Do you glory in the grace by which you have been forgiven and saved, but fail to glory in the grace, that same grace that teaches you godliness? It teaches you to live a holy life, Paul told Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But this same grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This grace teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Notice in that passage how Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We belong to Him. We were bought by Him. We must live for Him in response to Him. How much good has Jesus received from you for the price He paid to have you? Was it a good deal? When you go out shopping, we often look for the best product for the least amount of cost. That's the definition of a bargain. You get a good deal. You get something great, but you don't pay a lot for it. Well, in the case of the gospel, in the case of the cross, Jesus paid the most expensive price of all. He paid with his own life blood. He gave up his own life. How much more should we give for the greatest price ever paid? How much more of ourselves should we give? We should give all of ourselves to him. In verse 15 of Lamentations 1, we read of the sad account of the Lord's presence in the midst of his people. God's presence in his people was meant to bring blessing to his people. When Solomon prayed at the establishment of the temple, the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the people rejoiced and sang and celebrated because of the blessing they were enjoying with the God being 
of, of the only God being present with them. But now in verse 15, the presence of God among his people does not bring a blessing, but brings brokenness. Verse 15 literally says, Trodden down all my mighty ones have the Lord in my midst. The English says, The Lord rejected all my mighty ones in my midst. But it literally says that the Lord in my midst, he's the one who trodden them down. He's the one who trampled them down. The Lord is here pictured as trampling his unrepentant people who had been repeatedly warned yet continued to stiffen their neck. Now they are being suddenly broken without healing, just like grapes are trampled in the process of making wine. The people of God are being trampled. They're being refined in order to bring the nation to a greater maturity in order that there might be a remnant that will be holy and true to their Lord. We must learn from the often, uh, <clears throat> and, and we must learn from and often learn to live with our past sins in order to grow in maturity and to grow in godliness. Our Father does not want us to repeat our past failures. When your father disciplines you, it is meant to lead you to greater devotion to him, not a greater distance from him. Have you ever noticed that after you've been delivered from some trial or affliction, you look forward to fulfilling some personal dream or desire rather than a deeper, more directed devotion and service to the Lord? After suffering and praying for relief, you want some personal time, some me time, some vacation from kingdom work, when we should be looking for more time with the Lord to be energized to serve Him more fully and faithfully. What motivates this kind of devotion? What motivates it is the fact that Christ Himself was trampled. He was crushed on Calvary. After a life of service to his father, Jesus ended his last leg of his journey on earth in Gethsemane, a word that means an oil press. It means crushing. He is the mighty one, the true virgin who was trodden down by his God. His service was heightened at the end of his life. And even after the resurrection, he has gone to prepare a place and ever lives to intercede for us. When the lamenter in verse 16 saw the desolation and the destruction of Jerusalem and her strongest inhabitants demolished, they could not stop weeping over her ruins. 
There was no comfort, no comforter for Jerusalem, she who was to testify to the consolation of all Israel and thereby to all nations had no one to comfort and revive her. Her enemy was too strong. It was not just Babylon, but the Lord had become like her enemy. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of her failure to recognize him and his coming. He also wept over what it would take to restore her, his own abandonment and receiving the wrath of the Almighty God. Jesus, however, was not racked with personal guilt or, or loss of, of assurance, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and did not think its shame and humiliating circumstances were worth comparing with the glory that was about to be revealed. When you weep over your sin like you weep when you don't get your way, then revival is on the horizon. When you weep over all the sinful failures you see in the church, how sin and idolatry and adultery have destroyed whole congregations and shipwrecked the witness of Christ in the world. When you weep over these things, when your heart is broken to tears, that's when revival is coming on the horizon. When your heart is broken to tears, where where Jesus is unrecognized and his name is abused, when these things break your heart, then revival is on the horizon. Israel had no revival because her repentance was not true at this point. Then you will find, when you really weep over sin, you will find goodness and mercy chasing you down. Jesus willingly laid down his life to bring you comfort and life. And when you're willing to lay down your life to be used to advance his cause and not look outside yourself for someone to blame for the ills of the church and in society. We often want to blame everyone but ourselves. When we start pointing the finger at ourselves and humbling ourselves, then comfort, then peace will run and overtake you. Then, the Bible says, your peace would be like a river. We cannot, of course, limit our lament to a single thing. But we must lament all the things that destroy the impact that our life in Christ is meant to have in this world. Because of Judah's sin, she could not withstand the enemy, and neither are you a match for Satan's power. But Jesus, on the cross... He's the one who bound Satan. 
He's the one who disarmed him. He's the one who stripped him of his power, openly put him to shame, and triumphed over him. Jesus crushed him. And now in Christ we live. And Christ lives in us. Little children, you are from God and have overcome, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That God himself, in sending his Son, has appeased his own anger. The God of peace crushed Satan under the feet of the first century saints, and his power to do so in your life is not lacking. Jesus enables you to live holy lives, unmatched, separate from sin, and unequaled by anything in this world, or anything this world has to offer. You have been blessed by God the Father in Christ, and we must see our blessed life as a calling to be a blessing in the lives of all others. In verse 17, Jerusalem, the abandoned widow, cries out to God, but there is no answer, there is no comfort. Rather, the Lord has commanded her neighbors to be her enemies. If you had a light, but refused to shine it and show the way to those on the road to destruction, walking in darkness, what do you think they would think of you? You have the cure, but because of self-love and self-preservation, because maybe they won't like the light, maybe they won't follow the light, you silence your lips, you won't share, you won't show what you know, you would be worthy of attack and the object of hate. In this pandemic, suppose you had the cure, but you didn't want to give it. You didn't want to share it. You didn't want to offer it. How angry would everyone be at you? Because you had the cure, but you let people die. Friends, you have the cure to a greater pandemic, the pandemic of sin, of rebellion, of transgression. You have been given the cure. You've been given the light. You've been given the answer. Don't hide it. Shine it. Show it. Tell it those that Israel was supposed to impact for good and for God, God made them impact Israel for evil. Do you ever think that the church in the world today is often blamed and shamed and attacked because, because we have failed to shine the light and show the way like we were created to do? because we've been strapped with idolatries. Is your life strapped with idolatries today? Are there things that you need to put away for good? 
so that God might use you to have the influence and the impact you were meant to have? Our only hope, our only help is Christ. His prayers, unlike Judah's here in verse 17, they only seem to go unanswered. It was when he cried out that he was becoming sin for you to become the righteousness of God in him. Comfort came for him on the third day when he rose from the dead. Christ had become the one who was impure, so you might be declared righteous because of this gospel. Although you have failed, you can bring your failure, you can bring your sin to Christ. And it's only when we do do we experience God's comfort and are filled with His Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and empowered to be experientially the holy city of God, the city of the great King, the city of Christ. Jesus sanctified Himself by becoming sin, so we might be sanctified by becoming the righteousness of God in Him. This righteousness is more than declared, but also demonstrated. Being declared righteous motivates us to be righteous, and behaving righteously testifies to having been declared righteous. These things are meant to go together. Jerusalem, the holy city, had become impure and unclean even among the nations. She had become filthier than they. Is that the state of the church today? Is it your state today? Have you become filthier than the world? If so, turn again to Christ. Turn again to the cross and behold his beauty there. Let his love, his grace, his mercy, his lordship, Again, melt your heart and urge you on to hating sin. Don't squander or despise the gospel of God or let the opportunity to impact the world for Christ pass you by. Israel came to the front door of the promised land and couldn't get in because they despised their Lord. And they suffered the cost of it. Don't let an opportunity to influence and impact the world for the kingdom of Christ pass you by. Shine the light you have. Fearlessly show the holy love of Christ to everyone without apology. And let the Lord work through you. God bless you.